everyone, and welcome to the January 17th edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Insurance Guarantee Association won its latest legal battle with CMS over how the government calculates its bill to workers' compensation carriers for Medicare reimbursement. Last March, a federal judge granted the United States motion to dismiss portions of SEGA's complaint against them regarding Medicare payments. It held that California's insurance codes are preempted by federal law in the case of SEGA versus Sylvia Matthews Burwell. SEGA is currently paying several claims in the Burwell case under various workers' compensation policies issued by now insolvent insurers. Some of these claims also received medical benefits from Medicare for services that were otherwise not involved in any industrial injury. When Medicare pays benefits for a loss that is also covered by workers' compensation, the Medicare Secondary Payer Statute says that Medicare is the secondary payer and generally requires other insurance plans called primary plans to reimburse Medicare for all benefits it paid. Since the workers' compensation policies in the Burwell case were primary plans within the meaning of the statute, the United States demanded that SEGA reimburse it for the Medicare benefits it paid to these claimants. But SEGA refused, prompting the United States to commence collection proceedings. In response, SEGA filed a declaratory and injunctive relief action against defendants Sylvia Matthews Burwell, the United States Department of Health and Human Services, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. SEGA contended that it was not required to reimburse the United States for Medicare payments paid to individuals whose losses may also be covered by SEGA. But ultimately, the federal court held last March against SEGA and dismissed SEGA's claims against the United States to the extent that they were based on the United States' failure to file timely proofs of claim under the California Guarantee Act. But the SEGA litigation in the case on other issues continued and things changed. In the same case, SEGA alleged that CMS calculated its reimbursement liability in a manner that is contrary to the law and regulations, resulting in over-inclusive reimbursement demands. SEGA sought a judicial declaration to that effect, as well as a permanent injunction barring CMS from reapplying the offending practice to future demands against SEGA. SEGA and CMS were ordered into mediation to resolve the dollar value of the CMS obligation and were unsuccessful in arriving at an agreement. At the conclusion of mediation, CMS gave up and withdrew its demands for money altogether, hoping to just walk away from SEGA. CMS then claimed that this rendered SEGA's litigation moot and asked that the rest of the case be dismissed by the court. But SEGA responded that the CMS conduct does not make it absolutely clear that CMS will never again reopen these claims or reapply the offending practice, which means the case was not moot. And the federal judge agreed that the issue was not moot and held CMS in the lawsuit to consider SEGA's allegations. 
The court found that CMS has not changed their practice with respect to reimbursement calculations. Rather, they have simply withdrawn their reimbursement demands for the three particular claims at issue in this lawsuit. SIGA did not dispute that each charge for which CMS sought reimbursement contained at least one diagnosis code that is covered by SIGA's policies. And CMS did not dispute that each charge also contained codes that were not covered by those policies. Thus, the party's arguments centered on two main issues. Whether SIGA made a prima facie case that the reimbursement requests were erroneous, and whether federal law and regulations support the CMS position that SIGA must always fully reimburse CMS for a charge containing one covered code, regardless of whatever uncovered codes are also present. The court concluded the argument in favor of SIGA in a January 5 ruling. If a single charge contains multiple diagnosis codes, some of which relate to a medical condition covered by SIGA's policy and some of which do not, the presence of one covered code does not ipso facto make SIGA responsible for reimbursing the full amount of the charge. Instead, CMS must consider whether the charge can be reasonably apportioned between covered and uncovered codes or treatments. This is a ruling at the federal district court trial level, and it may very well and likely will be appealed even as high as the U.S. Supreme Court. However, at this point in time, there is a well-reasoned opinion in SIGA's favor and also inures to the benefit of all other California workers' compensation carriers and self-insureds. A New Jersey man injured on the job at a lumber company will have his medical marijuana tab paid for by his employer's workers' compensation insurance. The state administrative law judge ruling appears to be the first decision of its kind in the state of New Jersey. Andrew Watson qualified for the state's medical marijuana program in 2014 because of a hand injury he suffered while working. Watson bought two and a quarter ounces of state-sanctioned marijuana in the spring of 2014, but when his employer refused to pay, he stopped using it. The price of one ounce of cannabis averages slightly under $500 in New Jersey. At those prices, New Jersey's medical marijuana is the most expensive in the nation. The law does not require insurance to cover the expense, but the administrative law judge ruled that the effects of the marijuana is not as debilitating on the injured worker as are the effects of Percocet. The pharmacy records show that ultimately he was able to reduce his use of oral narcotic medication. And according to the judge, as a result of his improved pain management, he has achieved a greater level of functionality. The defense attorney who represents the insurance carrier Gallagher Bassett Services said his client respects the court decision and declined to comment further. Watson's lawyer said he was very pleased with the ruling. Some predict the ruling would have minimal impact on the employers, given how few employees would be debilitated enough to qualify for both workers' compensation and the state of New Jersey's restrictive medical marijuana program. 
The city of Los Angeles budget officials warned that the city needs to immediately borrow tens of millions of dollars to avoid dipping into its emergency reserve fund after several high-profile lawsuit payouts. The city administrative office recommended that the city borrow 50 to 70 million dollars to address cases that are part of a new trend of increased liability payouts. The city typically budgets $60 million a year for its legal liability fund, but it has already paid out $135 million since July 1 when the current fiscal year began. Recent significant payouts include a $200 million settlement over a housing-related lawsuit brought by disabled groups and an $8 million settlement to end lawsuits related to the fatal Los Angeles Police Department shooting of three unarmed men in separate incidents. The $200 million will be paid out over 10 years. The report recommends issuing judgment obligation bonds to fund these settlements and warns against dipping into the city's reserve fund instead, which is for financial emergencies. As of November, the reserve fund stood at about $295 million, which the report said is only precariously above the minimum amount required under city policy, which is 5% of the general fund budget. The assistant city administrative officer said the rising expenditures could be the new normal in terms of paying out cases. The report goes on to state that the options to resolve this deficit are extremely limited, and the deficit is mostly driven by the liability claims account, human resource benefits account, and recent labor agreements reached with firefighters. In order to borrow the money, the report requests that the city attorney clarify and expand on the types of settlements that are eligible to be paid with judgment obligation bonds and to provide more procedural flexibility with respect to the timing of certain portions of the issuance process. And now our crime report. Stunning details have emerged on the inner workings of the black market underworld for prescription drugs, some of which are sold in pharmacies. The U.S. Department of Justice announced that 56-year-old Randy Crowell pleaded guilty to fraudulently distributing more than $100 million worth of prescription drugs obtained on this nationwide black market. Crowell used his Utah-based licensed wholesale distribution company to sell illicitly procured drugs to pharmacies, which in turn dispensed them to unsuspecting customers. He purchased more than $100 million worth of prescription medications from his black market chain at a fraction of the legitimate prices for these drugs before selling the same as new legitimate bottles of medication to legitimate licensed pharmacies all over the country. To maximize profits, Crowell and his co-conspirators focused on some of the most expensive medications on the market, including those used to treat HIV and AIDS. They targeted the cheapest possible source of supply for these drugs, Medicaid patients and other individuals who received these prescription drugs on a monthly basis for little or no cost, and who were then willing to sell their medicines to low-level participants known as collectors rather than taking them as prescribed. 
The collectors worked on street corners and bodegas and would pay cash, typically as little as $40 or $50 per bottle. The collectors used lighter fluid and other potentially hazardous chemicals to remove the patient labels affixed when the bottles were initially dispensed. This process, referred to as cleaning the bottles, was dangerous as these hazardous chemicals could infiltrate the bottles, rendering the medication unfit for human consumption. Collectors then sold these second-hand drugs to higher-level participants known as aggregators, who bought dozens and sometimes hundreds of bottles at a time from multiple collectors before selling them to higher-level participants with direct access to legitimate distribution channels. The corrupt wholesale companies then resold the bottles as new at full price to pharmacies, including potentially the very same pharmacies that initially dispensed the medications. Crowell created false documents known as pedigrees for these medications, which purported to document the legitimate movement of these drugs bought and sold by them. Crowell pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud, which carries a maximum term of 10 years in prison. As part of his plea, Crowell also consented to the forfeiture of more than $13 million in scheme proceeds, including the full contents of his primary operating account. Crowell will be sentenced on May 11. A former Ventura County neurosurgeon has been sentenced to nearly 20 years in prison for his role in a $2.8 million health care fraud scheme, which caused serious bodily harm to patients. 43-year-old Aria O. Sabit, M.D., has a significant criminal history dating back to 2010 while practicing at the Ventura-based Community Memorial Hospital. At the time, Sabit was a licensed neurosurgeon in California. Sabit admitted that in February 2010, while he was on the staff of the California Community Memorial Hospital, he became involved with Apex Medical Technologies, which was owned by another neurosurgeon and three non-physicians. In exchange for the opportunity to invest in Apex and share in its profits, Sabit agreed to convince his hospital to buy spinal implant devices from Apex and to use a substantial number of Apex spinal implant devices in his surgical procedures. Sabit further admitted that he and Apex's co-owners concealed his involvement in Apex from the hospitals and surgical centers. As a result of these unnecessary surgeries, about 30 of Dr. Sabit's patients sued him for malpractice. Community Memorial Hospital cut ties with Dr. Sabit in December 2010. But with his California career in the rearview mirror, Sabit took his practice to Detroit. There he convinced patients to receive spinal fusions with metal instrumentation. But Subsequent diagnostic imaging revealed that he never installed the hardware, just bone dowels, and never achieved fusion. Sibit was arrested in November 2014, and by May 2015, he pleaded guilty to various federal charges. In connection with his guilty plea, Sibit admitted 
that the financial incentives provided to him by Apex caused him to use more spinal implant devices than were medically necessary to treat his patients. He also admitted that the money he made from using Apex spinal implant devices motivated him either to refer patients for unnecessary spine surgeries or for more complex procedures than that they did not need. Sabit also is a defendant in two civil false claims act cases brought by the Justice Department in the Central District of California. These two cases remain pending. <clears throat> 55-year-old Simon Hong, who lives in Brea and who operated rehabilitation clinics in Walnut, Torrance, and Los Angeles, has been sentenced to 121 months in federal prison. Hong was found guilty last October of eight counts of health care fraud, nine counts of illegal kickbacks, and two counts of aggravated identity theft. Hong owned physical therapy clinics operated by Hong's Medical Management Incorporated, CMH Practice Solutions, and HK Practice and Solutions Incorporated. As part of the scheme, Hong recruited Medicare beneficiaries and provided uncovered services like massage and acupuncture. Even though they did not receive actual physical therapy, Hong's co-conspirators billed Medicare for physical therapy and then funneled 56% of the reimbursement funds back to him. Through this scheme, Hong received nearly $3 million in reimbursements which he was ordered to reimburse to the government. Hong is one of 10 defendants who were charged in 2015 and early 2016. Eight others have pled guilty, and one 58-year-old David Y. Kim of Los Angeles remains a fugitive. These individuals should be precluded from recovery of any bills or liens that may be pending in California workers' compensation cases as a result of the new law that took effect this year. Hong is scheduled to be sentenced in this case on March 6. And in regulatory news, the California Department of Insurance released the Examination Findings and Regulatory Settlement Agreement concerning the cybersecurity breach of health insurance giant Anthem Incorporated. The breach compromised 78.8 million consumers' records, and the Department of Insurance said this was one of the largest cyber hacks of an insurance company customer's data. Anthem agreed to make a number of enhancements to its information security systems and also agreed to provide credit protection to all consumers whose information was compromised. Anthem is paying more than $260 million for security improvements and remedial actions in response to this breach. The Department of Insurance also said its examination team concluded with a significant degree of confidence that the cyber attacker was acting on behalf of a foreign government. The cyber breach was first discovered by Anthem on January 27, 2015. But a following investigation revealed the data breach began earlier in February 2014 when a user within one of Anthem's subsidiaries opened a phishing email containing malicious content. Opening the email permitted the download of malicious files to the user's computer, 
and allowed hackers to gain remote access to that computer and at least 90 other systems within the Anthem enterprise. The Department of Insurance team found Anthem had taken reasonable measures prior to the data breach to protect its data and employed a remediation plan resulting in a rapid and effective response to the breach once it was discovered. After survivors of the December 2015 San Bernardino terrorist attack brought their problems with receiving timely medical treatment to the Board of Supervisors, county leaders pointed to problems with the workers' compensation system. Now the county has formed a task force set on mending issues with the statewide system beyond just those experienced by the attack survivors. The task force will work in conjunction with San Bernardino County's employee associations and unions to identify issues survivors are experiencing and see about suggestions for addressing those issues. The task force is the latest effort by the county to deal with criticism levied by public health workers in November over delayed treatment received following the terrorist attack at the Inland Regional Center. As of late November, 18 employees in the county's Department of Public Health had filed for workers' compensation, and officials had anticipated 36 more cases at that time. Last month, supervisors hired a firm to provide enhanced nurse case management and system navigation services to county employees injured in the attack. The county said it had found many of the issues raised by employees stemming from the county not receiving supporting documentation from their treatment providers. The task force will regularly report back to the board, and Supervisor Kurt Hagman said he appreciates a turnaround proactiveness. Following four recent tree-trimming workplace fatalities, Cal OSHA is reminding workers and employers in this high-risk industry to take precautions to avoid accidents. Cal OSHA is investigating the four deaths, which occurred over the last six weeks and has launched a statewide safety awareness campaign for tree service companies, landscapers, and other businesses. The four tree Trimming deaths under investigation include a worker in Mariposa County who was struck by a branch on December 1, a worker in San Bernardino County who suffocated when dry palm fronds collapsed and trapped him on December 4, a worker in Los Angeles County who fell about 60 feet when the branch he was tethered to broke on January 6, and a worker in Siskiyou County who was struck by the tree he was cutting to clear power lines on January 9. Cal OSHA Chief Julian Soom said that Cal OSHA's safety awareness campaign aims to protect the lives of tree service workers. He added that employers in this high-risk industry need to be aware of and take steps to minimize the hazards to their workers. He warned that Cal OSHA will cite employers that are not in compliance with safety requirements. Cal OSHA investigated nearly 70 accidents involving tree work, including trimming or removal services, in the two-year period between 2014 and 2016. 
74% of these accidents resulted in a worker hospitalization, and 12 of the accidents involved the death of a worker. As part of the Tree Work Safety Emphasis Program, Cal OSHA inspectors throughout the state will investigate possible violations, and inspectors will also respond to reports of unsafe operations. The major causes of tree trimming injuries and fatalities include falls, electrical shocks, being struck by a tree branch, chainsaw lacerations, palm tree skirt collapses, and ladder accidents. Calosha has resources available to help employees and employers prevent accidents like these, including a tree work safety guide, fact sheet, and checklist. And in medical news, 28 states and the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana for a variety of medical uses, and eight of those states plus the district have also legalized it for recreational use. Now, a new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine offers a rigorous review of scientific research published since 1999 about the health impacts of cannabis. The report authors considered more than 10,000 scientific abstracts to reach its nearly 100 conclusions. They found evidence that patients who are treated with cannabis or cannabinoids were more likely to experience a significant reduction in pain symptoms. For adults with multiple sclerosis-related muscle spasms, there was substantial evidence that short-term use of oral cannabinoids improved their reported symptoms. And in adults with chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, there was conclusive evidence that certain oral cannabinoids were effective in preventing and treating those symptoms. But the report dismisses most of the drug's other supposedly medical benefits as unproven. Crucially, the researchers concluded there is not enough research to say whether marijuana effectively treats epilepsy one of the most widely recognized reasons for cannabis prescriptions. The report also cast doubt on using cannabis to treat cancers, irritable bowel syndrome, or certain symptoms of Parkinson's disease, or helping people beat addictions. Turning to potential harms, the committee concluded that strong evidence links marijuana use to the risk of developing schizophrenia and other causes of psychosis with the highest risk among the most frequent users. Some evidence suggests a small increased risk for developing depressive disorders, but there's no evidence either way on whether it affects the course or symptoms of such disorders or the risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder. There's strong evidence that using marijuana increases the risk of a traffic accident, but no clear indication that it promotes workplace accidents or injuries or death from a marijuana overdose. There's only weak evidence for the idea that it hurts school achievement, raises unemployment rates, or harms social functioning. For pregnant women who smoke pot, there's strong evidence of reduced birth weight, but only weak evidence of any effect on pregnancy complications for the mother or an infant's need for admission to intensive care. There's not enough evidence to show whether it affects the child later, like sudden infant death syndrome or substance use. 
Some evidence suggests there's no link to lung cancer in marijuana smokers, but there's no evidence or insufficient evidence to support or rebut any link to developing cancers of the prostate, cervix, bladder, or esophagus. Substantial evidence links pot smoking to worse respiratory symptoms and more frequent episodes of chronic bronchitis. There's weak evidence that suggests smoking marijuana can trigger a heart attack, especially for people at high risk of heart disease. But there's no evidence either way on whether chronic use affects a person's risk of a heart attack. Some evidence suggests a link between using marijuana and developing a dependence on or abuse of other substances, including alcohol, tobacco, and illicit drugs. Currently, cannabis is the most popular illicit drug of the United States in terms of past month users. Based on a recent nationwide survey, 22.2 million Americans aged 12 and older reported using cannabis in the past 30 days. This survey also reports that 90% of adult cannabis users in the United States said their primary use was recreational, with about 10% purportedly using solely for medical purposes. Around 36% reported mixed medical and recreational use. In addition, between 2002 and 2015, the percentage of past-month cannabis users in the U.S. population ages 12 and older has increased steadily from 6.2% to 8.3%. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.